0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Welcome to the Year End Law Bites podcast. I'm Michael Geist, and this episode offers the chance for a look back at 2023 and to offer some thoughts about what might lie ahead for digital policy in Canada in 2024. Let me start by once again thanking Gerardo lebron Leboy who continues to provide exceptional production assistance, as well as the amazing array of guests that joined me on the podcast this past year. This is the 37th new episode of the year, with guests ranging from Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Philippe Dufresne, Senator Paula Simons, Conrad von Finkenstein, business people such as Cohere AI's Aidan Gomez and Village Media's Jeff Elge, and an incredible array of academics and civil society experts from around the world. Given the intensity around committee and CRTC hearings, this year also featured multiple episodes that took listeners into the committee rooms with clips from the discussion and debates. I'm grateful to all for taking the time to share their perspectives and knowledge on an equally wide range of issues, internet regulation, privacy, copyright, AI, freedom of expression, internet services, and much more. For this final episode of the year, I'll do a quick look back at some of the notable developments and provide a few guesses about what may lie ahead. A review of 2023 has to start with the myriad of digital policies, bills and laws that are now part of the Canadian landscape. Let's start with Bill C11, the online streaming act. It entered the year with the Senate having made some changes to the bill, and some hope that the government might accept those changes, particularly those involving the potential regulation of user content. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the government didn't. The bill ultimately went back to the Senate with those amendments excluded, and it passed, receiving royal assent in April. From there, there were really two main issues a policy direction from the government directed to the CRTC on how it wanted to see the law interpreted, and the CRTC process itself. Let's start with the policy direction, with a draft that was released in June, comments that were due in July, and then a final version of that policy direction that came late in the fall. Now, of note, the government did indeed seek to take user content off the table, and the CRTC has talked much about that. There are two ways of looking at this. Some would argue that, you see, there was no real reason for concern around Bill C-11. The government said it wasn't interested in regulating user content, and it's not. Uh, That's certainly one perspective, and, and the policy direction does indeed address at least some of the concerns. I think another perspective, and it's one that I would share, is that, in fact, it confirms that regulating user content was, in fact, in the legislation, and that it took a policy direction to try to take it out. And so that many of the concerns about its inclusion in the legislation to begin with, which certainly supersedes the power of a policy direction, was warranted. Indeed, as we look ahead to ongoing CRTC hearings that we'll talk a bit more about in a bit, there will be other issues that could have real implication for user content around things like discoverability. So that was the policy direction side. The CRTC process side of Bill C-11 got started in what is going to be a very lengthy process. The CRTC is suggesting there could be at least nine different consultations on different issues. They've addressed at least some of them. There are two that have now wrapped. One of them involving the question of registration with the CRTC. The CRTC established a threshold requiring at least 10 million in revenue in Canada. There were concerns raised about a CRTC acknowledgement that that could include podcasting, although there aren't many, if any, podcasts that at this stage are generating that kind of revenue on an individual basis, but many of those platforms might. In fact, the CRTC has said that it expects about 50 to 100 different entities be required to register the more notable and I think more contentious hearing involved questions around some of the initial obligations for the Internet streaming services in raising questions both about what threshold would be applied, with some still arguing for a similar threshold of $10 million in revenue in Canada, others arguing for a higher threshold, and then even more, whether or not the CRTC will impose an interim base contribution requirement effectively require these internet streamers to pay in support of Canadian content and film producers right off the bat without having sorted through many of the other issues that are raised by Bill C-11. Now, this was the subject of, of a prior podcast, one that I recently posted, involving my own appearance before the CRTC. So you can give that a listen if you're interested in learning more. That hearing has now concluded, and and we can expect that there will be a decision sometime relatively early in the new year, perhaps sometime by the spring on that issue. There will be, as I'll come to a little bit when I talk about what lies ahead in 2024, a whole lot more when it comes to the CRTC and Bill C-11. Then there's Bill C-18. Which, as the year went on, captured even more attention from the public and from policymakers, partially because C-11 had moved on into the regulatory space and partially because the bill proved to be incredibly contentious. Now, that bill, Bill C-18, or the Online News Act, ultimately passed in June. There were hearings that had been conducted in the House in 2022. In 2023, those hearings moved on to the Senate. The bill ultimately passes In the Senate, and as I say, receives royal assent in June. And that's when then many of the reactions that certainly the digital platforms had said that they would follow through with if the bill passed and became law actually came to fruition. And so both Meta, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as Google followed through on what they said they would do, which was in the case of Meta blocking news links and, in fact, blocking all news links, they said they would do so throughout the process immediately once the bill became law they said this was what was going to happen and then starting in august that's in fact exactly what they did and while there were many that had argued that this was just a bluff and that the australian experience suggested that after a few days facebook would come back in effect and and resurface those links to news we're now many many months uh, of after this process. And in fact, news links are still blocked on that platform. And there is at this stage really no indication that that is likely to change anytime soon. The government clearly has been very unhappy with Meta. Their initial response was to pull all advertising from Meta, although that's at the governmental level, at a political level, the Liberal Party and some of the other political parties still do advertise on that platform, we've also seen calls to investigate, to complaint to the Competition Bureau brought by broadcasters against Meta for blocking those links. And even most recently, we've had the new Canadian Heritage Minister, Pascal saint on suggest that the CRTC ought to take a look at whether or not, even with the blocked news links, whether or not Meta is still captured by the legislation because it's well known that there are some users that are posting screenshots of news articles. And the question is to whether those screenshots might bring them within the scope of the legislation. Google was always a little bit different. And in the case of Google, they had always indicated that they were not comfortable with legislation that required mandated payments for links, and that created what they described as uncapped liability. That Was their response immediately after the legislation passed that if it remained unchanged, that they would, in fact, block news links? The government was less critical of Google, seemingly because there was an openness to having some discussions and negotiations around the legislation. Government put forward its draft regulations, which left certainly Google unhappy. It talked about a 4% floor of their search revenues being required to be paid. So the attempt to try to provide some certainty was to come up with this number that would have established a, a precedent that Google made pretty clear they weren't weren't prepared to live with internationally. And so as time went by over the course of the fall and the deadline for this to start, which was December 19th, was that many in the news sector in particular, and I think within the government, began to realize that this was also not a bluff. And that while Google's preference was to find a solution, there was not an unlimited amount of money that they were prepared to pay, particularly given the precedent it would establish in Canada. I think that had the effect of really pushing many of the groups that had lobbied for this legislation to ensure that the government knew that its top priority really was to avoid that worst case outcome. And that though the legislation was clearly not going to provide the kind of bang for the buck that those who had lobbied for it had hoped... They were hoping to really limit in some way some of the harm and damage that it was rapidly creating. Uh, that led to a deal. As Google indicated, it was willing to pay $100 million a year. It's taken several weeks, but just prior to recording of this podcast, the government posted its final regulations. And you know, I've got some thoughts on my blog, but I think there are at least a couple of things that are worth noting here. First, the $100 million is far less than meets the eye. There is some new money for some players, but far less than many might otherwise think. Because when you look at that $100 from Google and recognizing that there is nothing further coming from Meta, Facebook, Instagram right now, you have to subtract the deals that existed with Facebook, which Facebook has actually told parliamentarians uh, amounted to about $20 million. You've got to exclude the deals that Google had which many believe are at least double that 40 to 50 million dollars in terms of what the range might be in Canada and those deals will be folded into the 100 million so it's not even 100 it's not close to 100 million in new money coming from Google as they fold in what they were already spending and then there are also the administrative costs to run this whole system which the government estimates at perhaps about 5 to 6% or another 5 to 6 million dollars so there's a lot less there than meets the eye the allocation of that money is also a lot different than most had expected. I think the way to look at this is that the government sold Bill C-18 in a particular framing, arguing that it was not going to become directly involved in any sort of negotiations or allocation of the money, that their role was simply to bring the two sides to the table, the platforms on the one side, the news outlets on the other, and ensure that there would be some negotiation, knowing that there was the prospect of final offer arbitration lurking in the background if they fail to reach a deal. Where we are now with the legislation, now legislation, as the Online News Act and the regulations now final, is that the law doesn't look anything like that. In fact, it was the government that, as I've mentioned, directly negotiated $100 million. It has now determined, by and large, how to allocate that money concluding that there's going to be that administrative money taken off the top. But beyond that, 30% for broadcasters, 7% for the CBC, and the rest going to print and digital. That's a win for print and digital, since if they were to apply this on an even basis in terms of simply allocating based on the number of journalists that the various entities have, the parliamentary budget officer estimated that 75% of the revenue would actually go to broadcasters. And there's been some speculation that about a third of all the money would have gone to the CBC. So the government created this cap on the CBC, a cap on the broadcasters and ensured that a larger amount went to print and digital. That I think has the effect of bringing the legislation closer to what people envisioned. The, the inclusion of broadcasters raised concerns really from the, from day one and the inclusion of CBC even more so. So, Why they insisted, why the government insisted on including broadcasters in the way they did, I don't quite understand because there were many that argued that this was exactly where things were going to ultimately end up. So some credit to Heritage Minister St. Ange for recognizing that the legislation that she inherited from the former Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez was flawed and that the way to get a deal was frankly to rewrite the legislation and do it by way of regulation. Now, that's a, an odd approach. I think there are questions as to whether or not it's even a legal approach. And there are certainly some sectors that are left pretty unhappy. Broadcasters have indicated they're not all that happy. Some of even the larger print outlets are still likely to get less coming out of C-18, even though there's now this larger share. And there are certainly many in the print world that may get nothing at all. That the way the regulations are now structured, as they link directly to News being online, searchable through Google, and the way that they have defined journalists to include anyone who is involved in the production of news has the effect of excluding some, some, let's say, local, the weekly papers, some of the ethnic media that don't have an online presence. They're shut out completely now after being told that they were an important part of the equation. And then even some of the smaller digital first publications that are still included We'll get less because of the way journalists are being counted here means that the larger players who have larger staff, more people involved, as I say, in the production of news, will get the larger share of what's available. That's notable because much of the debate, especially at the House, was about how to ensure that some of these smaller players were included in the system. And by the time we end up at the regulatory phase... Some are excluded and others get a very small piece of the overall pie. So I don't think there are all that many people that are happy with the legislation other than some who just wanted to put this behind and have the chance to move on, which is what exactly is going to take place into 2024. can talk a little bit more about what that might look like towards the end of this podcast. Let me move on though to several of the other pieces of legislation and bills that were in the spotlight over the past year. One that was not, and though it was expected, it was certainly part of the predictions that I would have made for this year, was the online harms or online safety bill that many expected to see this past year. It simply didn't happen. I think part of it reflects the government's frustration, concern with how its other internet legislation was greeted by the public and some of the controversy that that ensued, the amount of political capital that they had to expend to try to get that legislation passed. They actually even changed department responsible for this legislation. So this file has moved from Canadian heritage to justice, which I think is a far more suitable place for it. It has also had the effect of delaying things. And so there is no legislation yet. And At this stage, no real indication of when it might come. But there is Bill S-210, which is a Senate bill that started in the Senate, passed in the Senate. It was sponsored by Senator Julie Maville Duchesne, now in the House, and it has begun to move in the House as well. I referenced it briefly in last year's wrap-up as a piece of legislation to look for. And in fact, it took to the very end of the year, but suddenly it has started to move onto many people's radar screen. Ostensibly, the bill is about trying to limit access to sexual explicit content by people who are underage. And while there are few that would take issue with that goal, in fact, I think that helps explain why you see some of the support that you do, along the way, when you read the actual legislation, it raises an enormous number of concerns. To her credit, Minister St. Ange has said that the bill is fundamentally flawed, and I think she's right. The government has come out against the legislation. The Cabinet voted against it. Most Liberal MPs voted against it. But it has moved now to committee, passing second reading in the House on the backs of support from the Conservatives, who actually were the ones that brought this bill or representing this bill in the House, alongside the Bloc and the NDP. Now, why would there be this split or this concern about legislation designed to stop kids from accessing pornography? Well, the way it goes about trying to do that is first mandating age verification. And the use of age verification technologies, which could include even requirements for facial recognition as part of ID that gets submitted almost surely to foreign-based entities who will be collecting that information, raises some pretty significant privacy concerns. The law itself is very broad in its applicability. So it's not just obvious pornography sites. In fact, it's any site that makes available sexually explicit material that would include search engines or social media sites or chat sites like Reddit. So the idea that there would be age verification for all of those sites I think is deeply troubling. And then there's an enforcement angle here. There are penalties associated with not verifying that start at $250,000 and go up to a half a million for subsequent violations. But one of the other ways that it gets enforced, recognizing that many of these sites are not Canadian-based, is through website blocking. And it directly envisions the prospect of seeking court orders to block content, to submit those orders to internet providers in Canada who would be required to block access to the sites. And I think somewhat incredibly, legislation... Acknowledges that they that may involve blocking lawful content, not even sexually explicit content. It just may be that blocking is imperfect and it blocks perfectly lawful content, or it might also mean blocking content for people who are lawfully entitled to access that content. And if the legislation says that's okay. It recognizes that's, in a sense, the price to be paid for blocking access to this content so that kids don't have access to it. Uh, I think that makes the legislation constitutionally vulnerable. And I certainly think that the collection of these things, the age verification and the privacy-related issues, the broad applicability and site blocking, makes it really one of the bills to watch in the coming year and one that is enormously concerning. Three other bills to quickly touch on from this past year. There's bill C 27, which is the privacy and AI bill talked about it last year because it had already been introduced and was having a hard time getting through the legislative process. It began to accelerate this past year though, there was an attempt in the spring from a number of voices to urge the government to simply get ahead and just, passed this legislation, especially given the amount of attention being focused now on AI and the prospect for AI regulation. That failed. But by the time the fall came around, the legislation finally did make it to committee, the industry committee. I appeared before that committee as part of the hearings in the fall. And I think it's fair to say that at least thus far, the hearings have certainly brought forward many, I think, interesting and informed voices. But the hearings themselves reflect the flaws in the legislation, which is to include really three different bills in one, but at a minimum two bills in one, one dealing with privacy and the other dealing with AI. And so if you're a witness before the committee, you're left having to pick, are you going to talk about privacy? Are you going to talk about AI? The MPs asking questions have to pick as well. And I think what you're often left with is that neither issue is getting the kind of deep dive that is really needed. Moreover, the minister, François-Philippe Champagne, appeared at the very beginning of the hearing and and seemed to acknowledge that there were a lot of concerns that had been raised about the bill. And so he said, I'm going to make changes, talked about some of the changes that would come both on the privacy side and even more, some extensive changes to come on the AI side. But then when he was asked to provide the actual text of the changes, he said, no, I said it wouldn't do that until the very end of the process when the committee moves to What's known as clause by clause, where they review each clause in the bill. That I think sparked quite a lot of outrage from many MPs, and ultimately, the minister backed down, providing first some of the language on the privacy side, and more recently some of the AI language. But I think it has left a really flawed process that will certainly pick up in the in the new year. But there remains concerns, and there was a letter just this past week from from a number of groups and experts really calling for a reset, especially on the AI side of the regulatory process. There is more happening on AI, just as an aside. generative AI picked up a lot of attention this past year. There were several podcasts devoted to it. There's, of course, a lot of attention on ChatGPT and also certainly on some of the copyright-related concerns that may come out of that. The government is currently consulting on that. Initially, that consultation was going to wrap up This year in December, they've extended the deadline into January, but it'll certainly be one of the big issues to look for as the government decides whether or how to address some of the copyright issues. It's possible they may simply create a a watching brief and wait to see how some of the court cases play out, or they may move more aggressively. We'll have to see. Two other bills, just to quickly highlight, one is Bill C-56, which was the government's response to... The inflation and the attempt to try to deal with some of the grocery prices and some of the competition concerns in Canada. I raise this here as part of this podcast because at least part of that bill. I think, is a bit of a reaction to one of the other big stories this past year, which was the Roger Shaw merger. It was, of course, an attempt to try to stop that merger the year before. It ultimately uh, was struck down. This pad- th- Those attempts were struck down this past year. Appellate courts uh, weren't on side either with attempts to stop it. And then ultimately, of course, the government granted its necessary approvals. So that merger has now happened. I think a lot of people were left unsatisfied both with the outcome, but then also with the state of competition law in Canada that would permit the kind of process that it did. And there are some changes that would take place as part of C-56. There's also Bill C-59, which is the government's implementation of its fall economic statement. And included within that legislation is the issue of a digital services tax or the DST. Now, this is a bit more complicated. I have in the past devoted a number of different episodes to DST. The basics is that uh, digital service tax is designed to ensure that companies that generate significant amount of revenue from a digital perspective, that can be by way of data or by platforms or a range of different ways that that might happen, oftentimes the view is don't pay their fair share of tax, that revenues that are generated through those mechanisms allow for tax minimization strategies where very often the companies will be able to ensure that the revenues are not reflected in the country in which they're earned. And the effect of that is to result in less tax revenue for many individual countries. Much of the tax revenue, let's say, for the large companies going to the United States, for the Chinese companies going to China, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many countries that have enacted what's known as a DST, a digital service tax, which is basically a tax. Typically, let's say 3%, but it can be higher or slightly lower uh, on that kind of revenue. And there are a number of countries that have that in place. Canada does not yet, uh, but it clearly would like to. And the finance minister, Krista Freeland, has often talked about it's, her desire to, to implement that. In fact, Canada announced more than a year ago its plans to do exactly that. The complication is that there have been efforts to establish an international standard or an international agreement around DSTs, recognizing that this affects many, many countries. And there are some countries that would be net winners, some that would be net losers. Note that even for Canada, there are some companies that may fall under a global DST in other countries and, and thereby have an impact on Canadian tax revenue, although it's pretty clear Canada would be a significant winner as part of a global system. Many more companies paying more into Canada than, than, uh, than others that might pay less into Canada. But that effort at an international standard where there is an agreement in place, initially the hope was to have that in place by the end of this year, by the end of 2023, that's now been delayed by an extra year, but Canada wants to go ahead anyway. And part of that agreement was that there would be a moratorium on new DSTs. Canada lived with it, but is having a hard time living with an extension. There's a bit of uncertainty as to where this is actually going to go. The legislation does open the door to the DST. It has the necessary language for it to take effect. But while the government previously said it would take effect on January the 1st, now it's left the start date open although it should be noted that it's retroactive in effect. So it will go back three years once it does take effect, whenever that happens to be. So we're not totally sure when it will take effect, only that at some point in time it will and will likely have a DST, either by way of Canadian legislation or through the international agreement that would again allow for some form of DST. So that's the legislative side. Let me just talk about some of the cases, or at least broadly speaking, several cases Um, We've got the privacy-related cases. The most notable one of those, I think, would involve Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. A little hard to believe that is still an issue that's ongoing. I, I talked about it on a podcast episode with my colleague, Teresa Scazza, earlier this year. But notably... An attempt to enforce against Facebook coming out of Cambridge, the Cambridge Analytica case in Canada failed at least within the the first court ruling, although there is now an appeal, highlights some of the limitations that exist within Canadian privacy law, uh, and also raises questions as to whether or not there were in fact violations by Facebook involving Cambridge Analytica here in Canada. There were also some copyright-related cases. There have been cases involving either... The file sharing lawsuits, those still are a thing and questions about the role ISPs play in terms of notifications. Some of those cases might even make their way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. There is also the Proctorio case, which is a case that's coming out of BC, that has raised some some real concerns, I think, for many. Um, it involves uh, copyright in links to unlisted material on YouTube and questions as to whether or not providing those links would circumvent a technological protection measure established by Proctorio. In other words, those that follow this, is unlisting a video effectively a digital lock? It's a bit of a surprise to see that Proctorio has been successful so far, there are some efforts to see that case continue through the courts, given the the precedent that it establishes. So that's the copyright. And then there are, and this was also talked about in a recent episode with Andy Kaplan-Mirth, a number of cases involving wireless and wholesale access to wireless or broadband coming out of some of the CRTC decision-making. So The CRTC certainly stepped up efforts this year to try to address some of those concerns. There's a new chair, Vicky Atreides, who uh, has certainly taken a somewhat different approach on those issues than what we saw from the prior chair, Ian Scott. But some of those decisions are still mired in uh, litigation. And the effect of all of this has been, as we talked about on that podcast episode, to see a number of the independent entrants exit the space. And so the competitive landscape in Canada is far less than it once was. And there are implications there for these court challenges and these court cases because you've got fewer parties that might participate in them. Okay, so that's a look back at 2023. I've already provided a few hints about 2024, but let me just run through those. First, C-11 will continue as part of the CRTC work. In fact, the lion's share of its hearings are going to come, and some of the most controversial ones are still to come. For example, I think we can expect a pretty extensive consultation on the the question of CanCon. What does Canadian content mean in the digital environment? How should it be defined? Should we change the current approach? There will be groups that benefit from the current system that will be very reluctant to see any changes. There will be many groups who aren't part of that system who want to see changes. There will be hearings or at least consultations on questions around discoverability, questions on payments again on algorithmic regulation. So a whole series of issues. In in many ways, the meat of Bill C-11 is still to come before the CRTC and 2024 will be a very big year for that. There will also, of course, be a decision on the hearing that they just held on whether or not there will be some sort of interim payment. There will also be stuff that takes place at the CRTC with Bill C-18. So it has to establish, the CRTC has to establish some of the rules around C-18. There will be attempts to establish deals. Before that happens, there will be attempts to become the deal maker with a number of groups likely representing News Media Canada, the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, perhaps others seeking to become the entity, essentially the fund manager or the collective, on who will do the negotiating with Google, and there'll be an effort to get those negotiations and that those deals done within the first half of the year, because there are registration requirements and things that kick in after 180 days. After that 180 days, there's also the prospect of the CRTC examining Meta's role in all of this. I heard the heritage minister talk just this past week about an investigation right off the bat. That isn't going to happen. That misunderstands the legislation and its applicability effectively. Meta has 180 days to register. It's made it clear that it won't, but the CRTC isn't going to do anything until that timing expires. So it's really not until late spring, summer before we might see any of that happen. I think it's pretty clear that we will see Bill S210 overtake online harms, at least in the short term. It is certainly possible that the government will take an approach where it says, we will include some of these kinds of provisions in an online harms or in an online safety bill as an attempt to sort of short circuit the, that fund, the fundamentally flawed private members bill that comes from the Senate. Although given that there is support, from three opposition parties, or at least there was as part of the second reading in the House. There are the votes there to get this passed. So I don't think this is a drill. I think this is very real. And we will see as this proceeds to the House with hearings on the legislation, what path it takes. Bill C-27, I must admit, is anybody's guess. If I had to guess, I would say certainly obviously it's going to get out of the committee. It's going to be passed um in the house sent up to the senate where we will find another series of lengthy hearings whether they're able to get through all of that and then get this legislation passed this year i think it's still a bit of an open question the pressure to do something probably will outweigh the pressure to get something right I'm not convinced that that's the right approach, but nevertheless, that may reflect political reality. So I would expect C27, both the privacy side and certainly the AI side, to become where much of the focal point and the attention goes when it comes to digital policy. I also think we'll see the DST come to a head, uh, in part because... It's pretty clear that the government wants to try to move ahead with this. In the United States, there, of course, will be a presidential election, which will raise the prospect of tariff retaliation if Canada does move ahead. But given the potential revenues that are available, given the fact that Bill C-18 now is generating far less revenue than even the government itself estimated, That tells me that there will be ongoing desires to get a DST implemented, whether through an international agreement or alternatively, Canada moving ahead and perhaps just taking its chances with US retaliation. So, that's on the legislative side. Certainly, there are going to continue to be any number of court cases, as I mentioned, that are now currently up for appeal involving both privacy and copyright, amongst other issues. And the CRTC has indicated that's going to be quite active, although there is also a case that questions whether or not it can put on hold some of the other issues that it's responsible for. For example, broadcast licensing, which it's largely put on hold for a while given just the sheer workload that it's facing. So there's a lot happening. It's got a big workload. Sometimes I feel like I do too, as I, as I continue to examine many of these issues, but it's always interesting and I'm always grateful for people who are listening and engaging on these different issues. So wishing all listeners, everyone a happy new year, it's been a challenging year in many, many respects, hoping for better in 2024. We'll see you then. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod Pod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening.